Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast. This is a series where we discuss the spiritual and philosophical aspects of tea and the life lessons and wisdom that grow out of such a practice. After all, tea lessons are life lessons. If you'd like to support our cause and keep these podcasts going, then visit globalteahut.org and sign up for our monthly ad-free magazine that covers all aspects of tea from growing, processing, and serving to the history, lore, ethnography, and even the spiritual aspects of the leaf. Every issue also comes with a tin of sustainably produced tea. Global Tea, of course, is also a community growing worldwide with a beautiful app for members that help you learn and grow together as well as join or even host tea events yourself. This podcast is devoted to Cha Dao as a way of life. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, like the different genres, processing methods, science, or brewing methods and brewing tips, then check out our magazine or perhaps our YouTube channel, which is also called Global Tea Hut. There we have tons of videos, including a new brewing tea series where we do cover all the practical aspects of brewing tea. Of course, you can also come visit our free tea center here in Miaoli, Taiwan, Tea Sage Hut, where we offer two 10-day courses every month. Basically, this podcast isn't going to focus so much on the linear aspects of tea, the information about its processing, history, or brewing tips. It's going to focus instead on the life wisdom that comes from such a practice. Welcome to the fourth episode of Life of Tea. I'm really glad to have you back on the podcast, Buddha, discussing one of my favorite topics, Zen and tea. This is ultimately why I'm here um, at the Tea Sage Hut, helping to serve and foster this beautiful community. And I'm really excited to have this opportunity to sit down with you and deepen my understanding on Zen, the role of it in our tradition, and how it relates to my tea practice. Welcome, Buddha. Yeah, great to be back. Great to be back and wonderful to have the po these podcasts as an outlet to talk about the more uh, spiritual aspects of tea, the aspects of tea that relate to self-cultivation for those that want to listen to that. And, um, you know, then we can provide more practical like brewing tips and informa linear information about tea and how it's made and processed and where it comes from and all that in the magazine and in the videos. And so it's great to have like a forum that's devoted exclusively to, to this uh, aspect of tea because... Uh, it's so important and dear to me. As you said, it's also the primary reason I'm here. Um, so let's start with Zen. I find that in the Western culture, uh, Western people really have this vague idea about Zen, that it's something like some sort of a philosophy or a, or a, a spiritual practice that is practiced somewhere in the monasteries or temples, somewhere in the mountains in rural Japan. And, and like what it is, is, is kind of vague for a Western Westerner. And I understand that you know, like this podcast is not something that, you know, you, we can't really explain what Zen is in, in one podcast um, or even like a course or a retreat or anything like that. But perhaps you can point to what Zen is. Yeah, I mean, I think what we can do is we can focus on aspects of Zen that relate to tea. And we can focus on that. And, and like you said, Zen is like tea. It's a podcast where we could go on for rest of our lives podcast and just record 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 or live stream until we die and still not exhaust it because it goes back centuries so it's essentially many many lifetimes of many people and many many people's lifetimes were devoted to zen to tea to both 
Uh, there's an ancient saying in, in Chinese, which is cha chan yi wei. It's actually the title of one of my books, Zen and Tea are one flavor. And uh, so they, they do have a very old and powerful relationship to, to one another. And so um, historically, I mean, Zen, Zen, let's start with the word Zen. Zen is the Japanese version of, uh, you have to go, you have to etymologically jump back, like leapfrog back four words to get to the kind of the source. But uh, in the southern part of China, which is primarily where Japanese monks went to study Zen, the Chinese word Chan, which is the Chinese word for Zen, Chan, the Chinese word Chan was pronounced Tan, and in the Japanese, this became Zen. In the West, we mostly received it from Japan, so we use the Japanese pronunciation of Zen. So Zen comes from the Chinese Chan. The Chinese Chan is a, is a, is a translation of the Sanskrit Dhyana. So Zen is Dhyana. Now Dhyana, so we've followed it back, right? Zen is the Japanese pronunciation of Chan. Chan is the translation, the Chinese translation of the word Dhyana. Dhyana is a huge word. We could use pages to define it. But basically, let's boil it down. What does it mean? It means the meditative mind. The meditative mind. So uh, Zen is the meditative mind. And so the, the story is that the Buddha was fond in the retreat season of giving teachings on Vulture's Peak in the evening to inspire the monks to meditate the next day earnestly and also to offer them guidance in their practice, all the difficulties and challenges they would face. And one particular day, he got on the dais and he sat for 45 minutes and never said a word. Instead, he just held up a lotus. And they say that one student in that congregation, Mahakashipa, understood that silent teaching and something was transmitted from teacher to student. We'll talk more about that later. And that that was the beginning of dhyana, of, of, of Zen. And then that, whatever it is, unseen juju, was passed down 28 students, 28 generations, to a brother named Bodhidharma, who then brought it to China. And so Bodhidharma established four f f pillars, foundations of Zen. And Zen would become so many things throughout history. But again, we're focusing on its roots. We're focusing on parts of it that relate to tea for the purpose of this discussion, not for the purpose of being irreverent or disrespectful or cutting out anything from the tradition, but just for the sake of this small podcast. So he established four, the four foundations of Zen. The first we just spoke about, nonverbal transmission between teacher and student. The second, no doctrine, no dogma, no scripture. The third, it must lead directly to the heart of a person. And the fourth, it must reveal the truth of nature as it is, reality. So you can see that in some ways, Zen and the four, these four foundations of Zen parallel the scientific method. Right? They must reveal truth, it must be tested, and, and it, you know, it can't have just scripture and dogma or blind philosophy. And you can also see how the majority of people have a conception of, of Zen Buddhism as a religion. And as a result, they think of it in, ter in those terms, in religious terms. And, uh, you know, Zen Buddhism is, is an aspect of it. But you can see how the ism part, the religion part, conflicts especially with that second pillar, that second foundation of no doctrine, no scripture, no dogma, 
Like you've got problems. And so uh, let's put this really succinctly. Let's say it like this. Zen is the meditative mind. The meditative mind is ineffable. It's, it can't be described in words. The words can transmit it. So Zen Buddhism and all of the religious practices, the chants, the prayers, the rites, the rituals, the robes, the, the things that we consider as the, the ritual, they are the garments. And, or they are, we could think of them in terms of a basket. They are a basket that can carry the Zen, which is the meditative mind. And they can help uh, cultivate it, grow it, deepen it, and transmit it from generation to generation. But they can also get in the way. Nothing is as great at blocking and preventing the religious experience than religion. Uh, religion can facilitate the religious experience. It can also get in the way very strongly. And that's the same in this case. Like it can get in the way. And so throughout the ages, Zen masters have found other ways to instigate awakening and the meditative mind in others. Uh, especially the arts, calligraphy, uh, martial arts were created by Zen monks. Tai Chi, Qigong, first they were all internal, but external martial arts too, it all was born out of that. Archery, swordsmanship, and above all else, above all the other arts, tea, which is why Cha Chan Yi Wei, right? Zen monks were the first humans to domesticate tea. And it was through Zen monasteries, because tea as a practice goes back 20,000 years, but it's only in the Tang Dynasty, which is 618 to 907. In the Tang Dynasty, that tea reached the mainstream of China, that it like spread across the country, that it became something that became part of literature and part of poems and part of just like spread all throughout the kingdom. And it was introduced to the mainstream through the monastery. Mm -hmm. It was through Zen monks that it reached China, that it became the, China, the national beverage of China. It was through the monasteries. So they were the channels of it, in part because uh, they wanted a, a beverage or, or a social activity around which there was an alcohol, because in Buddhism we don't take, we abstain from intoxicants, so that, that was a part of it. There was a lot of parts to it, but um, it was through the monastery that the world received Zen, and we know the relevance and importance of it, because when the Japanese monks came to China to bring Zen scriptures and Zen teachings and Zen practices back to Japan, they also came back with tea seeds and teaware and tea brewing methods. And when they were asked why, some of them wrote down literally that, you know, north, south, east, or west, the masters of China said if Zen is to proliferate in Japan, then tea must also because Zen and tea are one flavor. But it wasn't just tea. It was about having other ways of achieving that nonverbal transmission, having other ways of instigating that meditative mind, right? That aren't based on the religion that can also get in the way. All those prayers and practices that can help, they can facilitate, you know, but the no scripture, no dogma, no doctrine part of the four foundations and pillars of Zen is a little bit at odds with those aspects of Zen as an ism. Right. We should also remember that the word Buddhism, Buddhism, you know, it, uh, that word was first used by uh, a European in the 19th century, early 19th century. And, and the teachings of the Buddha go back to 500 BC. So, you know, for a couple thousand years, there was no Buddhism. And there, there are just many divergent ways and paths. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't ever really thought of in those terms. Mm -hmm. so, that's a modern kind of perspective. Which, by the way, for all of you listeners, it's pronounced Buddha, not Buddha. It's not a ooh, it's a uh, 
It's the same U as in push or bush. Buddha, Buddha, not Buddha. So you can pronounce it properly. Thank you for cl clarifying that. Um, so if it wasn't called Buddhism until the 19th century when an, a European used that word, what would the monks then call themselves or, or the followers of, of that way? Well, I mean, like, first of all, like Christianity, there's a lot of different schools. It started diverging very soon after the Buddha died. And so there's many, many schools and many, many paths and many different ways and many, like, you know, in, in the same way as anything. And like some people create prejudice and they'll say like, all Muslims are X. They're jihadists. That's not true. It's absolutely false. And there are many, many, many versions of Islam. There are many versions of Christianity. There are many, many versions of Buddhism as well. And, um, you know, so what they call themselves is, would be many different things. <laughs> and, uh, but that, that idea of like a religion or belonging to a religion is not Eastern. In fact, when the Christians first came to China, they had a lot of trouble with this. They just couldn't ingrain the idea of religion and of subscribing to only one religion into the Japanese or the Chinese. The word for uh, like religious talks is in Japanese is like truth talk. The, the same in Chinese. The word for like exploring is clean is you know opening the heart, finding truth, finding the way. It's not about like signing up for one religious outlook of the world and then not others. And so when they try to like establish Christian churches, the people were like, yes, yes, we're devout Christians. We come every Sunday. And the priests were like, yeah, but I just saw you at the like Shinto shrine on Tuesday too. And then you were going to some funeral at the Buddhist monastery on Thursday. And they're like, yes, yes, but I'm a very devout Christian. I'll come every Sunday. Like they, they, they couldn't get them to understand that like coming on Sunday to the Christian church meant you can't go to those other things. They didn't see the world that way. They didn't compartmentalize religion. Religion was just truth experience. I mean, to some extent though, they did have separations. Like Taoists and Buddhists were often at odds. And there was like an uh, you know an understanding of subscribing to a particular set of teachings and how sometimes those teachings contradict with other teachings and so you would subscribe to this version of truth and then you know not participate or even write polemics against those other uh, versions of truth so it's not that there weren't any lines but like just the idea of like complete of of like the, you know the word religion in all of its connotations that English word doesn't really translate to anything in ancient Chinese or, or Sanskrit or, you know, same thing. The, the word Hindu is a Raj word. It's a British word for, you know, thousands of different beliefs, 33 million gods, some of the most, you know, ancient and deep spiritual philosophies ever written and many of them contradictory. <laughs> so same thing. If you say Buddhism, there are many contradictory views within Buddhism. So you're not, you're talking about a whole field of practice actually. You mentioned Taoism. Has, has Taoism influenced Zen as well? Yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, this is an oversimplification. And there's a lot of scholars who would get real riled up and be extremely annoyed by, uh, by, uh, by doing this. But you could rile up all those scholars, make them angry, and say that uh, Zen Buddhism is, you know the baby of Buddhism and Taoism. 
-hmm. like Buddhism is its mother, Taoism is its father, right? Because religious or philosophical ideas, when they travel to another country, what happens is what anthropologists call syncretism. They blend with the natural things there. So like Tibetan Buddhism is different because it's a blend of Bon, which is like their shamanistic traditions and Hinduism and Buddhism all blended up together. And, you know, so same thing. You get, you, you don't get some, it doesn't like it erases the philosophy of a place and then takes over, it blends and, and grows together. So certainly you could see Zen Buddhism as a, um, as a, syncretism between Buddhism and Taoism as it came to China China and it was dying in India we can if we're going more to history because I told you the legend of how it began with Mahakashipa and Bodhidharma and these characters that are mostly they might have some historical basis but they're also mostly legendary at this point it's mythological you know historically though you know Buddhism came to China and you know starting really in the Tang dynasty started to develop its own Chinese flavor its own Chinese version of itself it reached maturity in the Tang dynasty even though it had already by that time been in China for almost a thousand years or you know roughly a few hundred 800 or something you know and so uh, it, at that point it became distinctly Zen it became distinctly Chinese because there was fertile soil for it and in India its homeland it was slowly being absorbed into Hindu beliefs and losing its like individualistic character its uniqueness um, and that's what happens. Things travel to new places where they find fertile soil and then they grow up and evolve. Uh, both my teachers, my tea teacher and my Zen master, both said that tea and Zen are both right now in the process of a long-term migration to the West. Which I find, you know, you know, it's not completely true, but you could see how it's like, you know, there's truth in that. In the sense that like even in the monastery, the two or three Western people, when it was time to clean the meditation hall at one, were there at like 12.45, sitting up straight, ready to go. And the, you know, the people who grew up with that stuff show up a little late or, you know, like my tea homework, I did it all 800 times. And I would show up to my teacher like, I did that homework, I did it 800 times, here's my findings. And he would laugh and I'd be like, what are you laughing about? And he'd be like, oh, you're the only person that's ever even done it. <laughs> like, <laughs> these guys don't listen, you know. And uh, so, like, so there is like some, some kind of earnestness or seriousness of, of it. And then things evolve and change and become better as a result. Um, you know, for example, some schools of Buddhism were misogynistic. They, there was a, you know, this certainly doesn't come from the Buddha. The Buddha used to keep an untouchable, which is the lowest caste in India, near him. Uh, and when he would go speak in public to lay people, he would sometimes put his hand on, on that untouchable as he spoke. Right. So, of course, he was not in any way misogynistic. He ordained plenty of women. But this, there is stories that, like, you know, the women aren't real monks or that they, they, the best they can hope for is reincarnation into the life of a man so that they can be enlightened, which is all stupid because women are obviously closer to enlightenment than men. And they're smarter. Everybody knows it. And, uh, and so as Buddhism has gone west, like, any of those sentiments, if they are there in any tradition, they're intolerable. They're being cleaned out, which is beautiful. My tradition, however, doesn't have that because one of the patriarchs of my tradition, Dogen, in the 13th century, literally wrote in no uncertain terms an entire essay about how those who, you know, he liked to make up funny words for idiots and like he said, bucket heads or grass growing out of their ears. Those who don't follow women teachers or think that women aren't wise are bucket heads and have grass growing out of their ears. He says it in no uncertain terms, which is amazing because it's not only way ahead of his, 
of himself in Buddhism. But even in the world in those days, he's already centuries beyond what mm-hmm. the average person was thinking in those days. So it's good that like some of those things, you know, when they move, they find fresh soil and some of that soil new, new, uh, gives nutrients that provide new growth and stronger growth. And so that's happening. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, you mentioned cleaning and homework uh, in the last episode of uh, Life of Tea podcast. I talked to Shensu about cleaning, about that topic, and I was uh, interested in in uh, your opinion on that too, like how cleaning relates to Zen, and uh, obviously there's there's a tradition of in the monasteries to you know go out and and clean, and and physical work is really important in in the Zen tradition, but also how it relates to tea on a deeper level. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the West, we're really hung up on the separation between the physical and the spiritual. And um, the truth is, reality isn't either of those things. And that the material approach to life, as though we're a bunch of chemicals and just like atoms bouncing around and that this world's all mechanical, is incredibly inadequate for our health and well-being. But that like an ungrounded, foo-foo spiritual thing that's like the spirit spiritual side of life is more real or more important than the physical side is also dangerous and false and that's you know ultimately can cause all kinds of problems for people and society as well so you know taking that out you realize like that the physical is the mental is the mental spiritual the mental spiritual is the physical the ideal is the physical the physical is the ideal emptiness is form form is emptiness they are one in the same and so you know, you when you have a physical ailment, it's not like your body, your mind, and spirit are at bliss, and it's a purely physical phenomenon. As you sit there like a Buddha, when yeah. you have a cold, your mind and your spirit are also ill, and vice versa. People go through deep emotional traumas, very often develop cancer or something as a result, very soon after, as a result of all that emotional pain. Nice. So it goes both ways in this way, and they are one and the same. So. Your, your, your space is you and you are your space. And, you know, how, like if you, if you imagine, imagine peace in the form of matter, right? I guarantee the impression that you'll be describing is an empty beach, a windswept meadow, a snowy field, a nice cabin in the mountains, whatever it is. A peaceful lake. Peaceful. Now imagine a cluttered apartment. A cluttered apartment came out of a cluttered mind and it fosters a cluttered mind so it makes the mind more cluttered when you walk into your apartment and there's all these dishes to be done in a mess not only does that inspire with you you with a feeling like oh I have a lot of dishes and mess to clean up it also inspires like oh there's that email I have to send Tom oh there's that those bills I have to pay tomorrow oh I have that meeting next Thursday with so-and-so it inspires clutter Right? And when you and this is this world is so easy to be cluttered. It's a cluttered world. It's all sticky, right? Like you, you just want to go buy a TV so you can watch National Geographic, and you go to the store and you buy a TV and bring it home. Then you plug it in. You realize you don't have the right plug. You go back. You have to get a special plug. 
and it comes in its own packaging. And then you come home, unpack that, plug it in. Then you realize the speakers on the TV are either non-existent or you can't hear them. So you go back, buy speakers. They require wires. Then you got seven remotes, so you need the universal remote. Then you need special batteries. Then you need a special charger for those batteries. And now you just wanted to buy a TV and you've had to buy all these things and they all came in their own packaging and plastic bags and all these little twisty ties are all over the floor and this whole huge process and way more money than you thought you were gonna spend. So when you just go outside, clutter sticks to you. Mm -hmm. And so the ongoing act of clearing away space is really much more fundamentally our practice than what happens in that space. When you arrive in that space, practice begins. But we have a slogan in, in Buddhism, right? Making space for meditation is the primary meditation. When you make space, then practice happens, right? It's just like in my case, right? The, it's not, when I get to the gym, I know what to do. I put on the headphones, I go right to the machines, I start working out. Sure, there's some science of working out. You need to learn how to use the machines and in what order, but that all comes really easy. And once I'm in the gym, I don't have any problem exercising. I don't have any resistance. I just go right into it, right? It's the getting to the gym that's the problem. Making space for meditation is where most of our effort should be, not in actually what happens in it. Because if you're only meditating five minutes a week, it doesn't really matter what you're technique you're doing or what the guidelines are for that technique. You need to make space. In, the, in our case, mostly in this, time, in this age, it means also time. So a clean, empty space is important, right? When I first got to the Zen Monastery, a lot of Westerners I find started out in Zen and then wound up in Theravada. My story is the opposite. I started out in Theravada traditions for you know, more than a decade and then found, wound up in Zen. And when I was in those Theravada traditions, it was very focused on, on meditation and deep meditation. You know, there was a long period in my life where uh, I really honestly felt like a day was not a day if I didn't have at least eight hours of meditation, which a lot of people think that's just a crazy amount. But for me, that was like the standard. And then, then I found myself in this Zen center where there's these huge blocks of time right in the middle of the day where you got to work. And I, in the beginning, it took me a long time to learn, to learn how to accept them and to start learning and growing through them. Right? In the beginning, I was just like, these is... This is just in my way and it's silly. I can remember like one time, you know, there's a little part of the residence that was for lay people when they would come and have session and have courses. And my job was to clean the like bathroom and dormitories for the lay people. And then two days later, they assigned me that job again. But in those two days, no lay people had stayed in those rooms. So like from my perspective, like this was not only a waste of time, it was a waste of like cleaning products. <laughs> you know, we used to clean the stairs by hand, not with a mop, but with a rag on our knees, like up and down, up and down. And then, and so the first thing you kind of realize is that cleaning is a period. We practice that around here too. And if you come to our center, you're going to see we have Mondays are cleaning days the whole day. And it's a period. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, because in the beginning I was like, okay, how do I do this efficiently? How do I get it done faster so I can go do other things like meditate? But you realize it's a period. And if, if you finish that, they just assign something else. And you just keep going until the period's done. So there's no way out of it. And then you start to realize that, again, the separation between body, mind, and spirit is false. And that there is a, something spiritual about physically cleaning. Mm -hmm. That it feels good. That you're moving around stagnant energy. Right? Move furniture, clean under it. Like we clean here every Monday probably more deeply than a lot of listeners clean their house in a year. Clean, move stuff. There's energy stuck underneath. And in, in Chinese medicine, all illness is stagnation. And I would say that's the truth spiritually as well. When you're stuck, you're not growing. Mm -hmm. And every day you choose to stay in the same form or move up to the next level. You get to make that choice every day. And do not underestimate the power of cleaning. 
-hmm. That's part of T2. We always clean after and before and get everything ready. It's a way of honoring our guests. It's a way of honoring the space. It's a way of honoring T um, is to provide a clean space. I mean, what does it say to my about my relationship to the divine if my altar is all dirty and dusty and has rotten fruit on it? Mm -hmm. Right? No, it should be clean and bright and the fruit should be fresh and the incense and flowers are fresh and that's my relationship to the spirit. So it should be clean. It should be honored in that way. And you will find over time... You know, and I think most people realize this. Maybe cleaning is hard to start. It's like going to the gym. It's hard to get there. It's hard to get started cleaning. You're like, ugh, I don't want to do it. But then once you get into cleaning mode, there's something magical about that. Once you've like really surrendered to the act of cleaning and you really get into it and you start throwing stuff away mm -hmm. and like really organizing and cleaning. Once you're in that, really in that space of cleaning, there's something really magical about it. And there's something really transformative about what the space feels like afterwards. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've felt that too, like uh, stepping into a place that's just been cleaned has a different energy to it. And at, in home, at my room or my home, if there's a period where I haven't cleaned um, and then I decide to clean and move things around and clean underneath, the, the room just feels brighter and not like, you know, there's more light coming in or you know, physically, but it just feels lighter and brighter and it's easier to drink tea there, meditate there and just be at peace or, you know, feel that serenity and, and drop in. Um, you also mentioned, um, you mentioned um, the stickiness of the world. There's also like this inherent danger when you're getting into tea to that be sticky as well like you you might get into that mindset of like oh i need all these cups and and the several teapots and and several kettles i need the runners and the utensils for tea and um you know several different kinds of tea and, and so on so it's easy to kind of get stuck in that yeah i mean but that's not that's not even related to the material aspects of tea that can be as much about the immaterial as well that can be about like i need to read a bunch of spiritual books i need to go to 18 retreats oh, i need to go to more more yoga more tea more blah 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 more blah blah blah, blah right and really you become more spiritual not by doing a particular activity more but by taking the mind the zen mind that you cultivate in meditation and applying it to all areas of life when you can walk that way brush your teeth that way you know put on your clothes that way that's how you become more spiritual not more you know you can start collecting teachings Right. One of the Buddhist precepts, the ten grave precepts, is like I don't, I'm, I'm giving. I don't hoard or um, withhold. Is another translation. I don't like. I'm not greedy. I don't withhold. I give. Nothing I own is mine. So I'm, I'm, I give freely. And that also that hoarding can be about teachings, hoarding teachings, ho putting on teachings like Boy Scout badges. Right. As a teacher, I can tell you, I'm very, very, very sensitive to the difference between the frequency of ambition and enthusiasm. There's the enthusiasm of the beginner's mind just to learn and grow. And then there's ambition. And what you get for, from a Zen teacher when you show up with ambition is you get the stiff arm. I hold you at bay. I'll hold you at bay until you go away or until you drop that ambition. right? Because that desire for more, more, more isn't going to fulfill you. Even if it's more Zen, it won't fulfill you. There, you know, this is about the pattern that the deepest egoic pattern that's the root of a lot of our suffering, which is that I am incomplete, I am unwhole, something outside of me will come and fulfill me, 
and then I'll, right, and then I'll be full and whole, right? But a thousand times, a thousand times, a thousand, I've come to you over and over and over again, and I've told you, my son, my daughter, that which you seek is not outside of you. And when I say I, I don't mean Buddha in some weird foo-foo way of like I'm manifesting or in other people's lives. I mean the eye that's the subject of all your sentences. I mean your true self. This, the eye that starts your sentences. That eye has been telling you your whole life, right? Stop looking outside. But you live in a culture where that's the habit. That's the whole basis for the economy, for everything, for all of society, right? I didn't grow up in a place where people gave me advice like go meditate, look within my son. I grew up in a place where people said, oh, you just need to find a nice girl. Get a, get a nice job, go to school, lose some weight, find a hobby, get an apartment like your cousin and a new TV. That's what you need, right? Those kinds of advice, seek outward to solve your problems when the answers are within and fulfillment is within, right? Same with tea, right? This is why we also suggest when people first getting into tea, don't, you know, spend some years. Of course, you can't learn tea if you don't serve tea. In our tradition, we don't learn to make tea. We learn to serve tea. Serve tea. Serve tea to your family. Serve tea to your friends. Serve tons of tea. But don't get into publicly serving tea. That's dangerous. Right? You're not a professional until you've been trained to be a professional. I shouldn't go out and start treating people medically unless I've trained and have a license in some form of medicine. Right? You, the problem is you might be teaching people things that you don't even know are incorrect. You might be, you know, you might be failing to include things that you don't even know exist that are essential, <laughs> right? And, and so like getting all wrapped up in the like material aspect of tea also, same thing. You've just then shifted, or any aspect of spirituality. That could be spiritual books, attending seminars. In this age, when there's lots of traditions available to Western people, from yoga to Sufi dancing to Zen to everything, all in their own city, you can start collecting all those like Boy Scout badges. I went to the Sufi class. I went to the or Girl Scout badges. I went to the the Buddha seminar. I went to the you know and start collecting all, a bunch of teachings, collecting hoarding teachings, hoarding practices, hoarding like you know just again trying to fill that hole in you without out, out things outside of you which will never work because the, that's bottomless. The hole will never be filled with that, right? That's like some of us, myself included, I have this problem. So if it's poking you, know that it's not poking in condescension because this is one of my own problems where we take the emptiness of our, of our soul apart from its source. When our soul is apart from its source, it feels incomplete. Mm -hmm. And we take that incompleteness and we transfer it to the body and we try to use food to fill it. And then what happens? The belly gets bigger and the belly gets bigger and the belly gets bigger and you just ceaselessly cannot fill it no matter how much you put into it, right? You the get same, hungrier and hungrier. Yeah, the same thing with any of that. You can't go for it that way. So, you know, I, I always suggest remember the soul, forget the bowl. Hmm. Start with the spirit of tea. Start with the, the fundamentals of tea. Start with the spiritual side of tea. The material stuff will all come. This is like anything, right? If I want to learn music, you know, and you're my guitar teacher and you agree to teach me guitar and I show up at your house on Friday for my first lesson and start unloading a van full of wah-wah pedals, electric guitars, double neck guitars, amplifiers, you're just going to be like, whoa, dude, chill out. And you're going to go get an acoustic guitar and you're going to say C, 
C, C, C, C, and I might have to play C for months. I might have to play Twinkle Twinkle Star for a year. It totally depends on you, right? It totally depends. You might need to just put leaves in a bowl for two years, three years, four years. Who cares? Why are you in a hurry? Let go of the ambition, right? This is, there's no race. There's no marks. There's no levels, right? In, in T, we have a very powerful teaching, which is Zen 2. 1 to 10, 10 to 1. That's the teaching. You can see it on scrolls in both Zen and Buddhist classrooms and tea classrooms. What's the meaning? Cultivate the skills up to 10, then what do you do? Go back down to one. Advanced techniques are basic techniques mastered, right? That's why we say in Zen, post-Satori practice is fundamental. Satori means enlightenment. What happens when you have an enlightenment experience? Go back to one and start practicing again. Mm -hmm. One to 10, 10 to one. Go up the ladder, then go back down, and then go up again. It's, this is the, the exercise. This is the practice over and over and over again. So getting to level three isn't an issue. And you can imagine how like a, a more uh, wizened, uh, advanced student, someone who's practiced many, many years or even decades, and they've gone up and down that ladder many, many times. right? They've gone up to 10 and down to one and up to 10, down to one. They keep doing that over and over again. And then here's this bright beginner who probably like them, is like super ambitious to get from the third rung to the fourth rung. You can't help but like giggle. Mm -hmm. You silly. You know, you're gonna just, as soon as you get back up, you're just gonna go back down. And mm -hmm. eventually you're just gonna love being on rung three and stop that chase after more, right? So I'm incomplete, the future will complete me, right? Nothing will complete you other than the realization of connection to source. Mm. That's the only thing that's going to complete you, not something from the outside, whether it be spiritual teachings, seminars, meditation techniques, tea ceremonies, tea wear. You don't even have to focus on the material, in other words. You can focus on immaterial. Material doesn't matter. Again, this distinction doesn't matter. It's not spiritual good and true, physical matter bad, no good. That separation of like God and nature, silly, silly, right? God can't be separate from nature. He made nature out of his own being. Right? So there is no distinction. Hmm. And so it was transcending that and, and, and uh, realizing, you know, so you, you, uh, you, you shouldn't, you know, collect. Don't hoard. Be comfortable being a beginner. The best mind is beginner's mind. Beginner's mind is, is, is literally, literally, uh, the, could be the word for wisdom. The word for wisdom in Sanskrit is prajna. Pra means before and nya is knowledge. You can translate this as beginner's mind. The beginner's mind is open, full of possibilities, receptive, free. Those who think they know are stuck, clogged, broken, and limited. Hmm. Right? The real true seekers are constantly questioning. Read Einstein's biography. You'll find he was questioning until he died. They tried to like throw him out of schools because they were like, because he couldn't stop harassing the teacher and raising his hand. And the teachers were like, you think you know everything. You're constantly challenging what I'm saying. And he was, he was like, no, I don't know anything. I have nothing but questions. I thought you could answer them. Mm -hmm. But they were like stuck in a belief of the way things are. And it actually turned out a lot, of, a lot of his teachings were, a lot of his ideas were closer to the truth. And, but then he was also outstripped and so on and so on. You know, it's, it's an exploration. That's true science. Constant doubt which means constant wonder. Zen is about this, being comfortable with uncertainty, mm. mystery, all right? And so 
it's okay to be a beginner. It's beautiful. Rest in that. Why are you in a hurry? And the danger also of like making it about, even if it's out of goodwill, like I'm going to go save the world. The danger of that is like, I'm going to save the world. Who are you to save the world? Yeah. Then you're teased when you start going and serving like that publicly. You, it starts to become about you and not about the tea. Right? When I go out and serve tea, sometimes people even have that same tea at home. And then they come to my gathering and they drink the tea and they, they make a really false assumption that, that it's about, that like, oh, the tea was so much better when Wuda made it. That must mean Wuda's cool. Mm-hmm. Right? The exact opposite. The exact opposite. The more Wuda there is in my tea service, the worse it is. Absolutely. Any compliment you want to give to me, Wuda, you're profound. Wuda, you've changed my life. All I can do is turn out of the way and both of us look up at the altar of tea or Zen. And we say, no, Zen is great. Tea is great. Anything you're seeing in me that is great got there because of my cultivation of Zen and tea. Mm. The part that is me is just like you. I'm a brother from Ohio. I'm broken. I'm dented. There is no one holy here. Right? That's my favorite hymn. This train is bound to glory. This train carries no one holy. I am on my way to the light, but I'm as broken. There's my, one of my teachers used to say, there's no part of humanity I'm unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. There's no amount of darkness or brokenness I'm unfamiliar with in some capacity, mental or, you know, I understand what it's like to be a human and I'm not holy in any way. I'm not special. And the more of my story or me that's in my tea, the worse it will be. What makes my tea great is two things and they both blend together. They're both kind of one, but let's separate them even though they're one. One is my training, my practice, 10,000 hours it takes to master something. That's what the scientists say. 10,000 hours of meditation, 10,000 hours of tea, right? Decades of practice. And then number two, getting out of the way. Letting tea do this. She's been doing it for thousands of years. The more me in it, the worse it is. Mm. So letting her flow through. And how do I let her flow through? Through my training. And so I told you they're one. Mm -hmm. So when you come up and say, this tea was so much better than when I make it, what you're not complimenting me. I have nothing to do with it. What you're complimenting is the training, the method, the practice, Zen, tea, themselves and so instead of complimenting me which is a mistake let's both of us step to the side and say we're both students of leave and look up at the real altar the real teacher of this center is t not me Mm. is these methods not me Mm. so this is the important thing right earlier we talked about uh, this is a nice segue into something i want to talk about earlier we talked about trans non-verbal transmission between teacher and student Mm -hmm. and how that's passed on in this chain you know and a lot of Western people have this idea that like the transmission of Zen, which is a mystical, magical thing, but they have this idea of this like enlightened guru teacher with their fingers together in an om posture saying these really wise and enlightening words that shake up the student and they have an enlightenment experience of ah, oh, and then the teacher tests them to make sure it's real and they pass the test and get their diploma of enlightenment, <laughs> right? But that's not how it works. Right, Dogen t- even talked about in his book about how uh, the Shobogenzo, the treasury of the true Dharma eye, he talked about how when transmission happens between teacher and student, neither of them know it's happening as it's happening. And as a teacher myself and as a student who has passed through transmission, let me tell you that's absolutely true. It's a lot like falling in love. 
Maybe in hindsight, you can point out when it happened. Mm -hmm. In hindsight. But that, mo that moment when it goes from just dating and having fun to actually falling in love, it, it just happens. You don't know about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the, when you look back in hindsight, you can say, oh, it happened even maybe that specific day on the beach or over the course of that week or something. But you can't, it, it's, it's, while it's happening, you're not really aware of it happening, neither party, right? This is one of my favorite transmission stories about Huaynang. A lot of people know the famous story. It's in my book. But actually, the transmission happened before that. One day, his teacher, Hongren, came in the kitchen, and he was working in the kitchen, getting the rice ready. And his master you know, asked him, are you sifting the rice from the sand or the sand from the rice? And, you know, and Huaynang said, sift the rice with me. And then he sifted three times, and then his teacher sifted three times. And then his teacher said, good, the rice is sifted now. Cook it up, in other words. <laughs> right? And that, in that moment, there was a transmission that happened. It's nonverbal. It's, it's uh, something to it, you know. And uh, there's a magic in that. I don't, I don't know how to you know, talk about that other than resting with uncertainty and saying, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, that same with tea. Like we create space and we, we, we hold reverence and we be quiet. And we allow T to do her job. And we, we just sit together in, in silence and let the T do the work. And if there's ambition to make that happen, if you start allowing, you know, another danger. This is a huge danger that faces all spirituality in the West. It's, it's crippling, actually, spiritual practices in the West in many, many ways. Which is that our society and our culture has for a long time been so material and so focused on capitalism and consumerism that it's ingrained in us that the moment we find something we love, the next question that follows immediately is how do I capitalize on it? How do I make money from it? How do I make a living from it? We even call our careers our calling. Mm -hmm. We call them our calling. We, we say they are our calling. Oh, you found your calling means you've found your way to make money, right? How do I capitalize on something I love? Right? How do I sell more uh, yoga pants or teapots or tea or whatever it is? Like, how do I make money from it? Immediately that follows. And that's just so ingrained and so part of our society. But you have to be really careful with that. It's not that that's impossible. It's not that, again, I'm not stuck in that duality of money, earth, bad, spirit, soul, more true. The ideal is real. The material is not. Nonsense. I've got no problems with money. So it's not about that though. But there's a lot of dangers and pitfalls in that, in, in bringing that energy into one's practice, right? Um, you know, my advice, if you want to get, if you want to get involved in uh, the commercial side of tea, stick to the material products themselves. Selling ceremonies, no bueno. Mm. It's dangerous, you know? It's just dangerous to charge for, for that. Can it be done? I don't know. Maybe, yes. Certain situations. Sometimes you need to collect donations to provide, to cover the space that the event can happen in. Mm -hmm. Or the expenses of maybe flying somebody there. Like, you know, if I fly to America, there's expenses to feed me and jet fuel and things, you know. Mm -hmm. So we got to cover that and we can do that together. But it's just dangerous when, you know, it's just dangerous. It's, it's a dangerous practice. So that's another, that's the, the, another of the dangers that comes through the, material side of tea is the buying and selling and um, 
you know, really ultimately this is a leaf from a forest. It's priceless. It doesn't have any value. Hmm. What you're paying for when you buy tea isn't the tea. She doesn't have a cost. What you're paying for is the human labor of picking her and processing her and transporting her to you. Which is just a, uh, it's just a necessity of the two of you living together. Just a practicality. Mm-hmm. It's not her value. Tea doesn't have a value. It's just a leaf from the forest. It's just the energy of the forest flowing through your body. And the service of tea should be about that for free. Leaves and spirit shared between soul. Right? Leaves and water shared between spirits for free as a gesture of loving kindness and hospitality. That's the essence of tea. Not ego not come see the great Buddha and drink tea with him. Nonsense, right? But leaves and water shared between spirit freely out of love with nobody profiting from any level of it other than we all are more awakened. And you can, you know, you can, but you can also do tea business and do it as a dana. Dana is often translated as donation. It's one of the paramitas, one of the perfections in Buddhism. And it's often translated as donation. But it doesn't mean donation. It means giving. A giving heart. It can be service. It can be your body, which was given to you. So it's giving and receiving, actually, dana. Dana is giving and receiving. It's not just giving. Mm-hmm. It's more complicated. It's giving and receiving. So if it's given and received, you've received this body and you'll give it away too. So this body can be dana. All your possessions can be dana. If you have a bunch of tea and teaware and books on Buddhism and you're using all that to cultivate so that you can help other people and share with them, then all of that that you possess is now a gift to others because you're using it to cultivate yourself, to share yourself with others, to improve them and improve yourself along the way. That all is dana. Mm-hmm. But try, trying to possess it in order to fill that hole in you that is caused by your perceived separation from source. Right? That's silly it will never work and you don't possess anything you don't even possess your body you've always been free from material possessions you always will be mm-hmm. so if you want to do but you know even doing business can be a kind of dana when we do a business that serves society like selling tea can be a great service you're selling tea and tea to people and facilitating the movement of that it's not a bad job it's not any worse than any other job it's great it's just like trying to integrate that into practice is hard, mm-hmm. right? Trying to, you're almost better, you know, separating them in some way or doing something else. Or if you are doing that, then making sure you're, you have the space for your practice too. Maybe one way is to, you know, commercialize the TNT where, like I said, but don't do that with the ceremony itself. Right. Maybe that's one way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a challenging road. There are many ways to figure that out. It's not black and white. Mm-hmm. It's just a pitfall I'm warning you against yeah. because you brought up that. In other words, if you are having a ceremony, don't make it a commercial. Like, don't have a, don't advertise your products. Don't um, sell stuff like at your ceremony. Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily. Maybe I'm saying the opposite. Some kind of separation. Maybe you, uh, you know, like we do here. We sell some TNT wear online, mm-hmm. and uh, it's to, and we sell a magazine that comes with a steeping of tea. So in a way, we're in the tea business. We have the Light Meets Life tea and teaware that we sell to raise money to build the future center. We have the magazine and the tea brewing it comes with. 
And so we're in a way in the, in the tea business. But all that is to raise money to facilitate a space in which people can practice. Mm-hmm. And that's primary. And it's all donation based as well. Donation based. Sure, sure. But it, it, it's, it's mostly set that aside. It doesn't matter. It's to support a space where people can cultivate themselves for free. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, no, it's non-profit. So nobody's benefiting from it. You live here. You know. We work like 14-hour days and we sleep on tatami mats. That's right. On the ground. Nobody here is like getting off in any way from any of the money. There has never, ever, ever since the, in the beginning of this place with complete integrity, I can say there has never been any financial misconduct. Certainly, we've probably made mistakes. We're a bunch of bozos and a monk trying to manage a whole bunch of donations from around the world. We've probably misspent money or lost it or not accounted for it properly, but never any misconduct. Nobody's getting off on this money. It's not personal. It's not buying personal property. It's not uh, facilitating personal experience. Mm-hmm. It's to support a space. Right. And, you know, so, but if you need, but you also, maybe you need, are a lay person, you need to support yourself and your family and tea's a wonderful career and that's your career, fine. Then you sell that tea and teaware for money. If you also want to have a tea practice though, you have to at least separate some of your heart, some part of yourself to be able to do that for, for, you know, to keep that so you don't lose yourself in the commercial side and forget your practice. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. You have to find a method. I have a dear friend who owns what I find to be the best tea shop in the world, for example. And his, his answer to this, his solution to this is incredibly simple. It's not some deep and complex Zen thing. He's not that deep of a dude. He's a normal down-to-earth dude. Family, four kids, mm-hmm. real simple, right? He sells tea to make a living. He doesn't sell a single tea or piece of teaware that he wouldn't use himself. It's all organic, it's all clean, it's all good tea that he loves and would drink himself and that he can very then comfortably pass on, right? Because if you're a salesman and you're selling water filters and you use those water filters at home and you love them, then when you go around and tell people, hey, this is a great water filter, you mean it. You're not being dishonest. Mm -hmm. But if you don't like that water filter and you sell it anyway, there's problems, right? So he loves all the things he sells. And then at his tea shop, he literally said this. His, His wife will say the same. When anyone comes in, don't try to sell them anything. Just serve them tea. Mm-hmm. Don't try and sell them anything. Let the tea sell itself. Just serve them tea. Mm-hmm. So in their shop, people come and go all day long. They buy things or they don't. And everybody that comes, they serve them great teas and they also cook for them. So they take a part of the proceeds from the sales of tea in their tea shop. Because the owner is a chef. My friend's a chef. He's a vegetarian chef. And he's one of the best vegetarian chefs I've ever eaten. And he loves to cook. So he takes a percentage of the proceeds from his tea shop and he uses it to cook lunch and dinner every day, which is open to anybody. And so people come and hang out at his tea shop all throughout the week, all the time, and they drink tea and they eat beautiful food and they laugh and talk about tea and make friendships. And occasionally if they want to, they buy some or they don't. But you see now how he has a separation. Mm -hmm. He has a separation between the selling of teaware, which goes on, and the serving of tea and serving of food, which comes from the heart and is free. And through that, in almost 40 years of running a tea business, he has not lost his love of tea. Yeah. I got, we got another teacher here in Taiwan, another great example. In his place, his solution is a little different. He also sells only organic, solid tea that he loves. So same step one. He only sells products that he loves. And then step two, he, uh, all the tea and teaware that's for sale is in a back room. You can't even see it. So when you come in, you just sit down and have tea ceremony and there's not a bunch of products around you to even look at. And so you don't even know what to buy unless he serves it that day or you remember it from last time. That's another great way. Mm-hmm. There's a tea, famous tea house in Taipei set up that way too. 
There's no TRT ware for sale anywhere in the tea house other than in this small little shop area near the door. So it's isolated from the place where you actually drink tea. So, you know, there's all kinds of solutions. There's ways around that. Again, the answer isn't to separate the spiritual and the ideal and the material. A lot of spiritual traditions have financial misconduct. They have financial problems because their teachings are oriented around that dualism of spiritual and ideal mental soul part of the world is more real, more true, more purposeful and material physical aspect of reality is lesser, less important, not important valueless and so because their teachings don't relate to the material plane they don't know how to deal with it they don't have any teachings for how to deal with it and so it's all about the spiritual is all that's important there is no material it's all da, 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 and a lot of stuff up in the clouds and then in the end but i need some money which comes as this great contradiction this this twist that they don't they don't really approach it properly they don't integrate it properly mm-hmm. when you transcend that duality get out of that and the you know money is is spirit too Mm-hmm. Money's made of God as well, and uh, you know it's any kind of power. It's just power. Use it for good. Mm-hmm. You put it towards good. It can anything can be done. All your possessions, your life, your body, your your eyes, your work, your hands, they, your money. It can all be done. Give it away. Why not give away your money? Make a practice of it. The Buddha encouraged this all the time for lay people. Start giving dana. There's so many people in need. There's so many people who need help and, f- and money can help in a lot of ways. You can give water to people in Africa. You can help orphans. You can build spiritual centers where people find themselves. You can buy tea and give it away. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can do like my friend. Take the money and buy food and, and, feed, and use that money. to. He, he not only uses the proceeds to feed people, he also, as I said, he's serving good teas all day. Mm-hmm. That costs money to serve good teas to people all day. So he's taking parts of his profit. He sets aside enough for his family and him to live a simple, comfortable life. And he uses a lot of the rest to serve and be generous with a lot of tea, give it away, share it, and also serve food and share it in that way because he loves to cook. So he's found his gifts and a way to share them for free. And he's found a way to generate an income so he can afford to give a lot away. Yeah. Right. So no matter what you're earning, give money away. Even if you can only give $10 away, give it away. Constantly give, right? And not just in ways that improve, that come back to you. It's nice when you like buy a Light Meets Life kettle and you, and you support the building of Light Meets Life, but you also get a kettle. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about more pure Donna. But that doesn't have to be money also. It could be your time. You go serve at the local old people's home or the prison or the uh, orphanage. You, you do work for them. So it could be time as well that you give. That's also Donna. Mm-hmm. Go give your service, your time. Give money. Give, just get, cultivate that giving heart. Mm-hmm. Cultivate that not withholding, right? And that goes for teachings, that goes for material products, that goes for, uh, you know, any aspect of whatever you feel like you've gathered, right? In the Tao Te Ching, it says, the more he gathers, the more he loses. And that's material and immaterial. If you save $1,000 or $8 million in this life or death, you will lose 1000 or $8 million. The more money you gather, the more you will lose in life or death. You learn to speak one language or six. You will forget in this life or death one or six languages. The more languages you learn, the more you forget. The more you gather, the more you lose. Unless it's all dana. It's in service of the world. Then you pass it on. Then it goes forward. Then it lives through you. Then you never possessed it anyway. Mm -hmm. It was just flowing through you. 
So this isn't a, there's not a formula for how to relate to the material. Stop separating spiritual and material. Put them together. That's Zen. A lot of these things we're talking about are Zen. Mm-hmm. Transcend that, first of all. Second of all, regard everything as dana. And start giving. And cultivating a giving heart. Not the heart that withholds and squeezes and constricts and says, my and mine but the heart that shares and gives, right? T has taught me that over the years in a really powerful way. When I first started out, I started craving tea and teaware for my own possession, to hoard tea, to hoard teaware. But then over the years, I started to realize that the real joy in tea wasn't in owning a lot of tea or teaware, and I had the best of it all. Ming Dynasty cups, Qing Dynasty Zha pots, silver kettles, antique iron tetsubins, Tea worth, you know, I got into tea when when aged poor wasn't expensive. This center still has tons of aged tea that is now worth a fortune, right? All that I had. But I realized very quickly that the true joy in tea wasn't in owning tea or possessing tea, but in sharing it. Hmm. And then I started to shift. I started to look at teaware and think, how does this teapot, how does this bowl help me to serve others? Not how do I possess it and try to fill that hole that can't be filled through a teapot. It can only be filled by the realization that the separation from source is not real because the hole is created by separation from source. And so when I you know, realized that, I, I stopped hoarding TNT word and I started thinking how can the real joy, my own experiential joy, this isn't something someone taught me. It's not from a Buddhist book. It's from my own experience. What I really get off on is sharing tea not possessing it, sharing it. So how does this teapot help me share tea? Because that's what I really get off on. How does this teapot... And then more and more as time grew, now it's at the stage where my eyes have shifted thus. In other words, I only see value in teapots that help me serve. Sometimes we're out in a tea shop and a student or somebody comes up and is like, did you see this teapot? And I'm like, no, I didn't even see that. And the reason I didn't even see that is because that pot won't help me serve in any way. Hmm. And the reason they were seeing it is because they're more of a beginner and they covet it. Mm-hmm. Right? So for me, teaware has all become instruments to service. Tea has all become an instrument to service, not something to possess or hoard or desire or for me, 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 my tea, my teapots. No, for others, for service, for sharing, for love, for the healing of this world as medicine. This is what tea is, right? Not as some artificial way to try to fill that hole which once again can be filled can only be filled by the realization of connection to source mm-hmm. right so I, I i as i you know as i tried to explore that it just didn't work and i realized that that what i love about tea is sharing and then that joy started to uh, motivate me and i started to even change my aesthetic and i started to approach tea as you know giving at, at this stage of my life i know that from now until the day i die i will be thoroughly surrounded by great tea and teaware day in and day out. There's just a relaxation into it. I don't need to seek it. And that's because it, I've let it flow through me. When I used to hoard it, there was never enough. The moment I let go of that approach and started letting it flow through me as service to others, I'm now completely immersed in it and surrounded by it forever. And, and, it, and it, let it be it. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. We even had a formal ceremony when the center first started going. I had to do this for my own sake. In the first year or two of the center, we had a big formal ceremony where I formally and publicly donated all my TNT wear to the center. 
Mm. Which let me do it right now on the sake of this podcast. All the TNT wear and brewing methods and teachings, Zen or tea or otherwise, all of it that I have gathered in my life through my study, through my meditation, through my cultivation, through gathering TNT wear. I did it all for you. I give it all to you. Come here and share in it. It's all yours. Right? And through that, I'm abundant. Uh, through that, it's, it's free. So, you know, seeking tea to try to solve that hole is not going to work. And so collecting tea and tea wear is not going to work. Hoarding is not going to work. Get out of that mindset and start thinking, asking yourself, first of all, which part of tea do I really enjoy? Probably if you're someone who is trying to capitalize on tea, like I said, which is dangerous, or trying to serve tea publicly, what really is motivating you to do that is just a love of tea and you want to share it. Mm-hmm. And you realize sharing tea is the real joy. And so these things that might corrupt the joy of sharing tea, like adding commercial elements or uh, making it egoic by sharing too large publicly when you're not ready, those things can damage that enjoyment. Mm-hmm. It can damage that ability to be in the state of joy in sharing, right? And so you become you know, a little bit weary of them and careful, you have to be careful. Mm-hmm. We, with the, even here, we're careful. I really loved what you said about the um, not feeling, not trying to fill your soul with something external. One of the most Zen things I've ever heard in my life, uh, and it's it's a funny story also because like where it came from, like I was shopping in a supermarket, and that was probably like 12, 15 years ago, and from the speakers, I don't know for what reason if it was like part of uh, the song or something, but the this sentence came out: the biggest lie you can tell yourself is when I get what I want, I will be happy. And that just, you know, when you said, when you talked about uh, not filling your soul with external things, that just came to me again. And, and it's something that's stayed with me throughout the years and I, I keep reminding myself. So how does one know when they're ready to serve to bigger groups or publicly? Yeah, I think you, you should never be ready. I'm always telling my students, I always quote, it may seem funny, but I, it's one of the deepest you know, things in my whole life. I always quote the movie Gladiator, right? And Marcus Aurelius says to the, his general Maximus, right? I empower you to go to Rome for the purpose of you know, setting her free. Do you accept this great honor? And Maximus says, with all my heart, no. And Marcus Aurelius says, that's why it must be you. When I was first instructed to teach, I didn't want to. And guess what? 10 years later, I still don't want to. I'm still not ready. I've got so much of my own problems and my own stuff. I always am thinking, who am I to be helping anyone else? When I have so many problems of my own, how can I offer anything to Janus when I'm so broken? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think if you want it, If you're ambitious for it, that's a sign of immaturity. You shouldn't be in a state where you want that. You should be in a state where, you know, the next line in the movie is, he says, surely some senator, someone who knows Rome and her politics. And then Marcus Aurelius says, but they haven't been corrupted by her politics. But they have been corrupted by her politics, but you haven't been corrupted by her politics, sorry. So, you know, as a just fun idea, I'm not suggesting this is an actual uh, solution, but as a fun idea, it might, it might be great for America to put all the PhDs who have no criminal record in some kind of lottery and just choose one to be president. It might be better that it's someone that doesn't have any political history or 
experience in politics or hasn't been corrupted in any way by any of that. I don't know. I'm not suggesting that really. I'm just throwing out an idea as a question. right? But the point being, um, the best teachers are good teachers because they're good students. Not because they got to a place where they had some enlightenment experience or they thought they knew it all and then all of a sudden they become this great teacher. No. I have things to teach people because I've spent the majority of my life being a really great student and learning a lot. If I didn't learn a lot, I wouldn't have anything to share. I can't loan you $10 if I only have five. I have to first go earn a bunch of money. When you earn a bunch of money, you can share a bunch of money. right? So I learned a lot and I'm still in that state. That doesn't end. I never graduate. I'm never, that's why I'm never ready. Because I never graduate. I'm always learning. My teacher used to always say, the only Zen masters are those who have died. The rest of us are students of Zen. He's now a Zen master. I am not. And I'm always telling my, my students the same. You want to call me tea master, wait till I'm dead. Until then, I'm a student of the leaf. <laughs> That's a good answer. I like that. Yeah, so thank yeah. you so much for exploring this topic with me. Would add, this is all the time we have for, for this podcast. Um, if you like the podcast and if you want to support it, the best way to do that is to go to globaltihad.org and sign up for the free uh, for the ad-free um, tea magazine that we publish that comes with beautiful, sustainably produced tea every month and covers all topics related to tea from the processing and brewing tea to uh, the spiritual aspect of it, the community aspect of it, um, uh, everything related to tea. Also, I should mention that if you are interested in this topic that we just discussed, there are Global uh, Jihad issues uh, on this topic. The most recent one is February 2018. So if you want to check that out, you can also go to globaljihad.org, go to the Past Issues tab and search for Tea and Zen and you'll find uh, a whole issue devoted to that. Join us next time for another inspiring discussion. Um, I'm going to be sitting down with one of the volunteers here who is actually right now serving a course and we're going to talk about what that feels like and what sort of lessons are in it, uh, what the experience was like to him. See you um, in the next episode.